Hey y'all, welcome to The Podluck, serving up bite-sized tastes of the best theology. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Grab a plate and let's dig in. It has been quite the break. My most sincere apologies. Uh, There were some family medical issues that came up uh, right around the holidays. And so between um, addressing those things and the holidays themselves, and then early in January, I had my wisdom teeth out. And y'all, let me just tell you, if you're listening to the podluck and you are under the age of 18, and you have the ability to get your wisdom teeth out, please do it now. Um, Because that is no joke. And I made it all the way through high school, and people were like, just keep them, just keep them, it's fine. And it was until it wasn't fine. And then it took me like two and a half, almost three weeks to uh, feel my face normally again. And so so talking was very painful uh, for about a week and a half in January. Um, which as a extroverted, externally processing human uh, made things very, very difficult. Um, also, I had a hard time making facial expressions. I'm a very expressive person if you've ever met me in real life. Anyway, it was a whole mess, whole mess. Um, and then I had, I don't know if it was the flu or not, but I had a fever of 102 for like half of a week as soon as I started feeling better from my wisdom teeth extraction. So... All of that to say, I appreciate your patience. Um, things have calmed down both with uh, stuff going on with my family. Uh, there's a good path forward there. Um, and also, I am back to like fully functioning order now as well, um, minus wisdom teeth, uh, but that's okay. At this point, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, but if you are young and spry, go ahead and get those things out of your mouth while you still can before it sucks real bad. Um, anyway, so we're back and we have just a few more episodes here in the preseason of, or not the preseason, uh, the first season of the podluck. So, uh, we have this week's episode, which I'm super excited to air for you. And then, uh, next week I will give you my take. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, and then we'll have a, uh, kind of a wrap up episode that'll be a little bit shorter, more like what it was in the preseason. Um, and then there will be another break, but not as long uh, as this accidental uh, medically induced break that uh, has been happening over the last uh, six weeks or so. Um, there will be another short break and then we'll be back with season two. We're going to look at some scripture I'll do a preseason for that one again to help frame that out. But anyway, what you need to know is there's three more episodes in this first season. This week, our guest is Dr. Cherith V. Nordling. Uh, She was a theology professor of mine. Um, She is a dear, dear friend. Uh, She is who I would like to be when I grow up. Um, And so I am super excited to air this episode for you. Uh, We had a great time talking about what does it mean to be saved. And um, if I'm honest, Cherith has done more to 
frame my understanding of what it means to be saved and how I hold that um, more than almost anybody else has. Um, like I said earlier, she was my theology professor. Um, I had the privilege of TAing for her. Um, so she's just fantastic. So um, she has her PhD from the University of St. Andrews. Um, she's been a theology professor for many years. Um, she has the cutest dog in the whole entire world, uh, Bowen. Um, and I-, I love Bowen to death. Um, so anyway, um, she lives in Chicago with her husband. Um, and she is a fantastic human and so wise and so passionate. And I'm so excited for you to hear from her today. So grab a plate and let's dig in. Well, I don't think it means immortal souls going to heaven. In fact, I'm quite positive it doesn't mean that. Though I think in our Protestant tradition, we've been trained to think in two ways based on sort of how we come to faith, at least in the 20th century, the ways that Protestantism has invited us to become Christians. And that is sort of the the individual, but often privatized, individualized um, acceptance of Jesus as Lord in that personal way. But it ends up reinforcing some idea that salvation is a very private and individual thing that happens and that it's our agency that actually makes it happen in some way. And then the flip side of that, too, is that the the reason that we usually prompt people to want to get saved, um, and uh, again, the emphasis is on the verb there of getting saved, as if salvation is a thing to acquire, I think that emphasis also is uh, framed as a how do you get out of this thing to make sure that you get this other thing? And the get out of thing is very often framed in uh, the concepts of hell, um, damnation, eternal separation from God. And, and in the sort of the best sense of that, it's to get out of the sinfulness or the sin life that uh, has caught us up in bondage. But very often it's kind of a hell versus heaven. So if we get out of sin, it's so that we can get this eternal life insurance policy that secures our heavenly immortality. And that heavenly immortality is so often framed as souls going to heaven. So it's a it's a pretty Gnostic idea, actually, that if the individual just gets themselves with the right knowledge of how to get out of the condition that they don't want to be in and their kind of trapped life, then they can be freed to be united in some kind of spiritual way with the divine or in the heavenlies when they die. And and those ideas are not Christian ideas. Um, they're, They're not biblical ideas, though we will borrow the language of scripture to defend those ideas all the time. And I think it's uh, also a case where that, that way of seeing the gospel as good news is only possible to read if you proof text 
with an idea that's already uh, in place in a sense. And it doesn't mean, again, that you won't find moments in scripture that would defend that perspective. But it is a perspective that's really hard to hold if you read the entire scripture. Because the New Testament references to the kinds of things that we've isolated out and made them mean what they mean for us right now when we talk about salvation is really foreign to the biblical text. And why I can say that with the confidence that I do is that the New Testament is always reflecting on its own scripture. Like it doesn't know it's writing the New Testament when these things are being said and written down. They had had no concept that 20 centuries later we would be reading them as scripture. So they're living documents being um, passed around and reflected upon and, and exhorted by in the church in that first century in a profound way that's always reflection on the promise and the, the purposes of God, which surprisingly to all of them, and this is their faith, have been made known in an incarnate son, Jesus, and have been given to them as life in and with God by the Spirit. To be joined to the things of Jesus as not just God's divine son come and then returned in some kind of um, borrowed body way that reinforces that immortality of the soul. So the idea that he might be dumping his body on the way to heaven. But rather that actually this is a triune revelation that God is giving. And that's the surprise. And in that triune revelation is the recognition that actually Jesus of Nazareth would be Lord. And that's just mind-boggling to them because they get it that Jesus is of Nazareth and and human. But to attach salvation to his whole life as this human divine being, one person, and then to recognize that salvation then can't just be one event in his life, which is the idea that it's um, his death on the cross. And let's just take a little... uh, aside there to say half the time we don't even recognize that it's Jesus' death on the cross. We just talk about the cross. So it's not even the person of Jesus and what's happening to him and how God claims that event and all that led up to it in this person in his life to say, I will make that event the salvific atoning uh, way of, of putting to death sin and death right here so that my children can finally be free to come home and to be who they really are. We don't often talk about that even. And I think when the church gets lazy and talks about salvation by the cross, then we don't even hold the person of Jesus with the work of Jesus very well. But let's going back to sort of the career of this incarnate person who not only reveals God to us, but reveals us to us in his faithful humanity and his whole life and death and resurrection and now ongoing life as the ascended Lord, then salvation gets really um, disconnected from him and then him from us in terms of who we are and God's deep purposes for us. And we fall into this weird uh, moment of, okay, I need to figure out where I'm going to spend eternity. And I want to make sure I'm not spending eternity in a place that is suffering when I've already had enough of that in my life. 
So I think that the the beauty of actually gaining the whole perspective of Scripture is that actually we get to see God making this new people for his name, which is what we see in the New Testament. And that that new people is trying to understand itself in relation to God, giving, self-giving in Jesus, and that their life in the Spirit is always connected to the self-giving God who's given himself to be known and loved and recognized and image-bearing in Jesus. That instead of seeing Jesus in some isolated, odd, salvific way that just dips into the human story and then dips back out to get us to that final end, whatever that odd end is, it's to, to re-immerse ourselves back into the experience of that first church, which is to say they are discovering that their life is connected in a beautiful way of continuity, even though there's this radical and gorgeous discontinuity that suddenly happened by who is now this people for God's name, this new creation people that we are meeting in the New Testament and that we are part of as family, but that they're discovering their identity and their union with the Lord and one another precisely as the fulfillment of God's whole story with creation and with humanity and then with Israel in the promise that that would expand back out to re-embrace the whole of humanity and then restore the whole of creation. And that it would come through this um, messianic way of God being present to restore all things to himself, which means that actually that's the goal of salvation, is to actually bring us back to true human life with God, Mm -hmm. that to restore all things to himself is to restore Store all things to get to get them to get to be what they were all always meant to be in relation with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in this beautiful overflow of self-giving, other-oriented, divine love that is the share of the triune life in the created order, and that is just such a, a rich and incredible invitation back to life that is in fact. Um, so profoundly connected to what they would have understood as the word salvation from the scriptures that they were reading, from the ways that the church was seeing its life manifesting that, which was the life of shalom, right? That salvation really meant the saving of the whole person, that it meant their, their embodied life was restored, that their embodied life is never just their body individually. It's their interpersonal uh, relationships, that that's what makes a person, that embodied life is always connected to the lives Mm -hmm. of others, that it's connected to the created order, that it's connected to the life of God in profoundly relational ways. And so to be saved is to actually be restored back into the relational order and union that lets things really be who they are, what they are, for the sake of the other. And the wonder of that is then we stop having to be individually for our own sake because we're not trusting that anybody else will be. But actually salvation sets us free to let go of ourselves to finally be human, which is to be other-oriented and outward instead of the way that we talk about sin and it's probably best... um, 
best sense of that word um, as it kind of was moving through Christian tradition is that sort of turned in on the self, the incurvatus and say that that makes us go inward from Exodus 3 onward, or excuse me, from Genesis 3 onward. And Exodus 3 then becomes this kind of promise from God to Moses to say, want to start over again and try to <laughs> reorient to become a renewed people for God's name, because I'm actually going to literally deliver a people from a bondage of a, of a narrative and a claim over their lives and the purpose of their lives and the meaning or meaninglessness of their lives created by the powers of this world to actually restore this people for the sake of all people to see once again on the face of the earth what it looks like when God and people live in a union and a communion that's intentional and electedly intentional, that God has elected this people to walk out uh, a story, to walk out a visual aid, as it were, for the sake of what would be coming for the whole world, but also for the sake of the world in which they are active participants, that God would, would cleanse and renew and offer hope and life to a, a Canaan. If they they want it, right? <laughs> Whether they get cleaned out by by saying no, and God saying, well, let's make a new Eden space for those who have said no to life, um, not having the chance to keep doing that in this space, or actually having the chance to be part of the life that Israel would offer through manifesting the mercy and justice and shalom of God. And so I think that the the sorrow that's sort of wedded in our understanding of salvation is that we end up um, missing the big story. And then we actually don't know what we're saved for. And if there's anything that's missing in the Protestant and potentially Catholic um, way of seeing our life in the world in terms of saved people is that we are so focused on getting saved from whatever that thing is. So if it's sin or our sins or our sense of self-shame or hell, that we fail to recognize what we've been saved for in this very beautiful, uh, fundamental, most, most fundamental way of being saved certainly one at a time, certainly personally, um, profoundly sought and chosen before the creation of the world, um, delighted in, loved, pursued by the self-giving love of God to be embraced in the very life of God. Like These are the things that Paul just weds into his opening prayers and his letters that it's kind of the, the language that flows in and out, that these are eternal purposes of God, to choose a people, a children, to be made holy, to be brought home, to, to find out once again who they really are and whose they really are. All of those profoundly beautiful, beautiful uh, realities get lost when we are focused on our individualized salvation and we lose the privilege of actually participating in what Jesus is doing to, to restore us as brothers and sisters into this family and as a people for our eternal purposes in terms of actually getting to be 
these vice regents who get to actually rule and reign with him over the things that God has made that he's, he's set under our feet in the sense of actually giving us the privilege of, of participating with him to bring life to things, to, to bring flourishing to things, to bring hope and newness and wonder and be part of that in our imagination and our creativity that's, again, joined to the life of God and an expression of the life of God. And in the meantime, I think it also causes us to lose. So let me just focus on a reframing to say in the positive, if we, if we understand ourselves as being sought one at a time by God in the ways that Jesus loves to talk about in the parables of the one that gets sought, whether it's the sheep or the coin or the lost son, that that, that focus, that gaze is so intentional that things are not complete until that one is gathered back. But I think the thing that we also miss and, and want to re-emphasize and see as such a gift is that it's actually brought back. Mm-hmm. And that in being brought back, it's not just back into union with God, but it's back into fellowship with God and all that is God's, and especially God's people, because that's where he's given us to find our life with him, is in life with one another. And so to be saved, to be brought back as the lamb who finds his life secured again by being rejoined to the 99, where safety and fellowship and life and play and everything else happens there, where the son finds his meaning precisely because he's brought home and celebrated as as a value and belonging to the family despite the animosity of the elder brother to feel like he earned his salvation by staying good or, or the coin that's actually got its own little private value, but actually becomes part of a whole dowry in this kind of wedding promise, right? That says, this is, this is this woman's value is the whole of what she offers into whatever, you know, union she's brought into. And so it's just this, this, very uh, life-giving, hope-filled restoration that isn't also weighted by, oh, then I have to hold up my end of this salvation bargain that I need with God because God, because I'm the agent who said, I accept you, so I flip the switch now to make things work on the salvific side as if God hasn't already saved us. <laughs> Just <laughs> simply to recognize that reality and faithfully live into it but it also means that somehow i think i could lose it right if i'm the agent who made it happen and i now have to you know behave myself in such a way that i carry the burden of this saved relationship in order to make sure that god keeps me saved and again all of that bypasses the reality of the living jesus who is the one who has indeed saved us and is our mediating savior who is not going to unsave us any more than he could unincarnate himself once this is the choice that they've made for God to be God this way for us and our new Adam with us. He mediates the new humanity that we've been invited to live. And that is our salvation, actually, is to be joined to him and his life with the Father in the power of the Spirit. 
And so in a nutshell, I think the wonder of what does it mean to be saved um, is that actually each one of us matter beyond description in the heart and life and choice and freedom and beauty of God, or we wouldn't be here because we're only here by God's pleasure. And, and here we are. And he's determined that we're here all the way home and all the way into the, the new creation that is coming and that has already begun in our midst. And so that offering is on God's side and it was from God's side from the very, very beginning and cannot be thwarted. Like nothing is going to stop God's salvific purposes, which is beautiful to take the load off. And then to, to lean into that reality that to be saved then is to be saved into becoming an image bearing people for God's name. That when we actually are joined to God in his people, then we both individually, uniquely in our lives, and particularly in our lives and all that they manifest in an embodied way, but also as a communal corporate reality, we become a people, a, a hagias, a, a holy people, a, an ecclesia, a gathering of God's people, a, a community for God's name and presence and image. And then when people want to go, what does God look like and why would salvation matter to me? They are not just invited into a formula that gets them out of hell and into heaven, but they're invited into the truth and the reality, excuse me, the reality that, that they are to manifest the presence and the power of the living God upon the earth. And that they've been intended for that from the beginning and that they'll do it forever as all things are made new. But they're also intended to be doing it now mm-hmm. as a people by the spirit, that their life together, people who love one another, who should have no grounds on which to love one another. If you're looking from the gaze of the things of earth, but if you're looking from the gaze of the things of heaven, where heaven is really joined to earth in the prayer of Jesus then you're actually looking at things from the gaze of Jesus, who has made all things new in himself and says, what are we doing today to be part of that mercy and part of that perseverance and part of that power to heal and part of that power to endure in suffering and part of that power to withstand the powers and principalities of this world that redefine and dehumanize and marginalize and reorder for the sake of holding up structures which today, as impeachment hearings is a prime example of just saying, how do the powers want to recast the story of everyday life to say it works this way so that power, as we know it, can be maintained instead of God's power saying, well, you can do all you want from Washington to impeach or not impeach, but the Lord of life, who is in fact the reigning Lord, who has saved you by not just his death, but his life and death, and resurrection life, and ongoing, ascended, embodied life as this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, his life as the first fruits of the life that's coming for all of us, his resurrection life as the life that we practice now, that this is what it means to be the saved ones, Mm -hmm. and that our salvation uniquely is such a joyful, joyful gift 
from God to wake up every morning and be invited into life by the living God to be to be uh, heard and seen and to hear God say, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased because I see you always with and through my son and I see you finished as well as we see the complexities and the challenge and the pain and the sorrow and the marks of your wounds in the day that you live. But we also see things finished and we call you as a child who has been marked by that completion to lean into that today with fearlessness by the spirit to enter into what we are doing with you as a saved one with our people historically, globally, around the world, and to see a people that you're joined to who don't look like you, as well as those who do, because then you're actually living a saved life with the triune God, where diversity in unity is essential, right? And so if we only see ourselves in the people that we are joined to as God's people, then we're probably missing something profound about what it means to be saved in the world, if our lives are not actually radically impacted by the diversity of our family and the family that we've come from and the family that we are to make room for as they're going to be coming um, with us and after us. I think that's the beauty and the challenge in ways that we could talk about for days and days and days. And you and I have talked about for days and days and days about what that that life as a people for God, as a saved people, really does cost us. And essentially, it will cost us our life precisely as we're given it. So we're given salvation precisely to be able to lose our life over and over again for the sake of self-giving, other-oriented love, and then keep discovering that salvation is that we keep getting our life back. And that the ultimate gift is not disembodied life and God blowing up the world to get us to heaven, but it's to actually finally, finally get to live that life with God in a restored and renewed creation of heaven and earth united yeah. with a with a restored people and a restored everything. I can't wait, Megan. I can't <laughs> wait. has been the podluck thank you so much for tuning in today if you are enjoying the episodes then please take some time to rate and review as this helps the podluck be more visible to other people if you would like to support the podluck please visit our patreon page for as little as a dollar a month you get access to a slack channel where people are discussing this and other ideas Join the conversation, share this episode or others online at The Podluck Podcast on Twitter or at Podluck Podcast on Instagram. This has been Podluck. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Tune in next time as we dish up some more ideas about what it means to be saved. <laughs>